Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Pastor Tim Brown, Senior Pastor at Calvary Chapel, Fremont, with us today in studio. His radio program, Building Your House, 9 to 9.30 a.m. each Sunday morning here on KFAX. And more information about the broadcast and the church ministry at calvaryfremont.org. That's calvaryfremont.org. Folks that are maybe new to the Bay Area, eavesdropping on our conversation today, Pastor, um, that are looking for a new church home, tell us a bit about What's unique about Calvary Chapel? What's your unique sense of about vision for that ministry? Calvary Chapel. I don't know if it's a unique vision. I don't know if any church has a unique vision. But uh, back in the mid '80s, maybe early '80s, the the church began to flirt with the language and the practice of business. And uh, so many seminars came out saying you need to have a mission and a vision statement for your church. And 35, 40 years later, I still can't articulate the difference between a mission and a vision <laughs> statement. And, and to, to, be, uh, to be honest, that, that strain uh, uh, of teaching, it never really resonated with me. Though, you know, thousands and thousands of churches jumped on board. It just didn't sit right with me. Um, not that it was wrong, but it just seemed... But it does have that business sense as if, well, we're here to, you know, manufacture 10,000 widgets this year, and we'd like to reach 20,000 yeah, next. Yeah. You know? What am I supposed to say? My, my, I have a goal that in five years we're going to have 1,000 people in Sunday morning worship. Mm-hmm. That just rang hollow to me. Or in three years we're going to have a Christian school, and we're going to have five outreaches over here. And um, then when people began to publish their mission statements, vision statements, they all kind of seemed the same. Reach them teach them, send them. You know, mm-hmm. some form of that is on thousands upon thousands of websites. <clears throat> and I thought to myself, though, what, what really is my vision? What's my heart for the people? And uh, I came up with this. I want you to find out what Jesus wants you to do and do it. And so I put that on the bulletin. Our desire is that you discover what Jesus wants you to do and do it. Now, I've had conversations with uh, pastor friends and uh Tell me, I had one fellow specifically. Our vision is to reach community A, community B, and community C, just immediately contingent mm-hmm. communities to their church. I said, well, what if somebody comes and says they want to reach community D? Oh, well, that's, that's not our vision. Our vision is A, B, and C. Yeah. And I said, you wouldn't get behind him? Well, according to our vision statement, we couldn't. Mm-hmm. I said, I imagine if Paul had a vision statement like that. I'm only going to speak to the Jews. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but I said, hey, listen, I don't have a corporate vision statement. I'm not recruiting the people to fulfill the vision I have. Um, so therefore, I don't have to persuade them. I don't have to be a cheerleader. I don't have to promote it. I don't have to sell it. I, I want to know what Jesus is doing in your life. And I want to get behind that. Well, and you know, and so if anything, all kinds of people the, come the, forward with the, stuff. The big, the big vision statement, perhaps uh, the mission statement, was articulated uh, in Scripture: going to all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, yeah. love the Lord thy God with Amen. all thy heart, mind, soul, body. Good enough. Your for neighbor me. is yourself. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. maybe sometimes we tend to make this overly complex, and therefore we end up getting caught up in the minutia of the mechanics of it all, and as a result, we lose a lot of momentum because then it's no mm-hmm. longer about that iron sharpening, iron, iron teaching the word, making disciples sort of approach, and it gets mm-hmm. into all this other stuff. Yeah, and we just get behind the vision of people. We have one fellow who goes, serves the homeless community in Fremont, Newark on Tuesday nights. He goes to Oakland Friday nights. He goes to San Francisco on Saturday nights. Wow. And we have a bin in our lobby that uh, says, for the homeless or homeless outreach. I forget exactly what it says, though I see it every day. I should know it. And it is probably full every week. And every Sunday he just takes out the clothes, the boots, the blankets, the shoes that are in there, and he distributes them that week. And we just love to get behind him. We have a gal who has a single mom's ministry. Had a fellow today in my office, 
who is um, uh, promoting a Foster the Bay. It's a uh, it's a uh, Christian ministry with a vision that the church will be able to absorb all of the foster children in all of the counties, Santa Clara County, Alameda, the 10 uh, Bay Area counties, tremendous vision. And he said, well, he asked me, uh, well, I, I had indicated to someone else that I'm interested in uh, financial support. And so he wanted to follow up on that. He said, what got you um, interested in this or prompted uh, your, your interest? I said, well, there was someone in the church that wants to be a foster parent. And they put together an info, info meeting with you people. And we had 10, 12 couples from the church come. And we have one that's in the process right now of going through the foster training program to to receive a foster child. And so this isn't my vision. I'm not against it. It's not my vision, but it's theirs. And so I just want to get behind them with whatever resources we can. And, and just I want to make them successful in what, and effective in what God has called them to do. Uh, God has called the church, the, the ministry, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. It was just on my mind. And it just sets me free. I don't have to recruit you to my vision. Mm-hmm. I just get to get excited about what Jesus is doing in your life. And then I expanded the vision statement because um, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart. Uh, your neighbor is yourself. The, the greatest commandment is love. Paul says the goal of our instruction is love. Now abides faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. At the end of the discussion of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, the last phrase of chapter 12 is, I show you a yet more excellent way. An excellent way to do what? To build up the body of Christ, to edify the body of Christ, because that's the purpose of the gifts. And then we have the love chapter. And so uh, on the front of our bulletin now it says, Our desire is that you love God with your whole heart, and find out what Jesus wants you to do and do it. You know, and what I love about that that refreshing approach is the fact that sometimes we try to sort of force everybody into the mold. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is the vision that we have adopted. Yeah. This is the road down which yeah. we are going to head, the ABCDs, as you said earlier. And if somebody comes along and says, well, God has really laid a burden on my heart for the W category. So oh, I'm yeah. sorry, we don't do that. That's well, right. that, yeah. What do we say here? Yeah. Are we suggesting that your vision isn't a valid one? It isn't from God, or you have to go meet with some other group of believers. Yeah, I, I think the notion of, as you said a moment ago, and, and just as you said it, it was on my mind, equipping the saints and preparing us for whatever God has put on our heart, uh, be it you know the the the, the gentleman involved in providing uh, clothing for the homeless. Mm-hmm. There was a woman years ago that I interviewed, um, retired, lived in San Francisco. First of the month, got her Social Security check, went down to a couple of locations that kind of worked with her so she'd get the day-old bread and go Mm -hmm. pick up the lunch meat and so forth and made sandwiches Mm -hmm. and would go out into um, Civic Center Plaza and -hmm. would go to parts of the Tenderloin and pass out sandwiches. Mm -hmm. And every bag that had a sandwich and a bag of chips also had a Bible tract in it. And then she would stay to pray with people. Mm -hmm. And that was her ministry. Yeah. And she did this faithfully month in and month out. This is what she did. First week, the Social Security check came. That's where she, the Lord had her, yeah. you know, put put her her energy and her her finances into. And to see people like that that are willing to go to the front lines, share their faith, and impact lives doesn't have to be a part of some big multi-million right. dollar campaign. You don't have right. to have your own 501c3 yeah. and, you know, donor letters and donor campaigns and all that just to get out there and make disciples. Yeah, and so many of our people, obviously they're working in the church, if you would, sound team, worship team, ushers, children's ministry, uh, a cafe, all, all kinds of things that way. But we have so many working outside the church that we can just get behind uh, we've uh, involved in mission programs around the world because of the interest of our people in these things. Now, for me personally, you know, you mentioned that lady there. The key just isn't giving food and water, but the the continuity and the consistency of her showing up, she's developed a relationship with these people. They trust her. Our guy who goes out, and these guys, uh, the homeless love him, not just because <clears throat> of the resources he brings, but he just loves them. He, he doesn't judge them. He just loves them with the love of Jesus Christ. And they've developed such a trusting relationship with him. Um, <clears throat> now, this is something that Jesus has told me to do. 
uh, for five years, our church had a program. It was called God Loves You, My Muslim Friend. And it was on Comcast uh, Community Access Channel. Mm-hmm. So it was free. So every Tuesday night we were on, and I would preach verse by verse through the gospel of John, um, directed to uh, Muslim audiences, and basically emphasizing everything Islam does not have, though I didn't phrase it mm-hmm. like that, but Islam does not have a father, does not have a son, does not have the Holy Spirit. And so just really emphasizing the rich, deep relationship that we have with God uh, through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. We would have an intermission or a, a break halfway, and we would offer free Bibles in Arabic, Hindi, Pashtun, Dari, uh, Hindi, and some other languages, Bibles that we had on site. And if you want a free Bible, uh, call in or write into this address. And in five years, we did not have one nibble, not one. And so remember that story of the fig tree in the Bible? Mm-hmm. It hasn't borne fruit for three years. Well, Time to chop it down. <laughs> yeah, let's fertilize it another year, and then if not, let's chop it down. Well, we chopped this tree down. <laughs> it just it just wasn't. Now, maybe someone in heaven will come up to me and say, hey, I got saved through that program. But we had no response. And there were no metrics like a Nielsen thing mm-hmm. to know who was, who was uh, listening and whatnot. And so, you know, here we are at uh, we had our, our church was at the Cloverleaf Bowling Alley uh, uh, strip mall for about eight and a half years. And there's a mosque just down the road at our church now. Uh, four buildings over is the uh, Ibrahim Kalilala Mosque, the Abraham Friend of God Mosque. And so everywhere we've been, there's mosques. Well, at the uh, mosque by the other church right next door to it is a Starbucks. And um, I would go in there, and I'd see this clatch of Muslim men over the years. And then I thought to myself, you know what? Um, I, I'm never going to reach Muslims unless I engage with them relationally. And I don't know why God made me a pastor, because I am not a relational guy. Uh, my chief joy is a cup of coffee and a good book, and leave me alone. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's my chief joy. But I thought, I need to get into relationship with them, and, and a real relationship. And I thought, what, what can I do to kind of break into this circle of men? And, and, and I would go and then I would chicken out. I, it sounds so lame, but I would chicken out. Uh, but I thought, okay, this morning I'm going to do it. And But I, I wasn't sure of my approach, but the Lord gave me this approach. I went, I went up to them and told them, hey, I'm Tim. I'm a Christian pastor here in the area. And would you gentlemen tell me, what would you want Christians to know about Muslims? Christians in Fremont or just Christians in America to know about Muslims? Where do you think we're um, uh, ignorant and whatnot. <clears throat> and that was a very disarming question because I'm the student. Mm-hmm. They're the teacher. It's wide open. They can say anything. So they invited me to sit down. We had a wonderful, had a wonderful conversation. And then they said, well, what, what do you Christians think about us Muslims? Oh, we think you're here to take over. Oh, you're here to impose Sharia law on us and... And we're a little bit anxious about you. And they disabused me of that notion. They came over here basically to uh, escape a lot, a lot of the oppression and a lot of the, uh, the uh, forced response of Islam. Yet they are practicing Muslims. Well, anyway, we began a very uh, wonderful relationship. And I'm there every Wednesday morning uh, going there and talking to them. Sometimes it's politics, it's culture, it's family. Uh, it's it's religion. I have my Quran, and I'll take it. What, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And then I'm. We talk about Christian theology, and <clears throat> we talked about uh, the deity of Christ. I said, I know you guys don't believe this, but he, I want you to understand why we believe it. I'm not asking you to agree with it. I excuse not to agree with it, not to believe it, but at least understand that we're not just a bunch of you know. Ne- intellectual Neanderthals about the thing. And so we've had discussions on the deity of Christ and whatnot. It's been very, very life-giving. But about three weeks ago, I had a very discouraging morning with them. And I told the Lord, I, I just don't want to go back. I, you know, this is just uh, just too difficult. You know, uh, It's getting to be sure. work. 
Yeah, I don't know if I'm making headway. I mean, these are wonderful men. Um, but for some reason, that Sunday in the message, I mentioned, uh, um, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. And um, the Lord just spoke to my heart. He said, Tim, every Wednesday morning, you're going to the gates of hell. I'm sending you to the gates of hell. And by no means is that a comment on these men. They are beautiful men. They are delightful men. I really enjoy being with them. But in terms of uh, the the rock meeting a hard place, mm-hmm. you know, it, Mus- Muslims aren't the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. And so that's been my heart all along. And so I told Jesus, okay, I'll, I'll go to the gates of hell every uh every Wednesday morning. Now, I understand that probably everybody in my church goes to the gates of hell every day, you know, in terms of their their career and their job and their relationships and whatnot, <clears throat> where people are blinded, you know, by the God of this world. But it's just been a real challenge for me uh, to be relational with them. And if someone were to say to me, if one of them were to say to me, hey, you're just here to convert us, I would say, well, absolutely, yeah. And I love getting to know you. And but don't don't fool yourself. You want to convert me, don't you? They said, "Oh yeah," because <laughs> uh, they've asked me before. Are you are you getting closer? I said, "Oh no," <laughs> I said, "Oh no," uh, and I've asked myself before, <clears throat> what would it take for me to be talked out of Jesus, if you would? And I tell myself, it would never ever happen. Well, what if someone had a better argument than you? Someone bested you in argument. Uh, I would say, well, okay, but, you know, there's a lot smarter Christians than me out there who would be able to answer that point that that uh, person brought up. So I, uh, I might be arrogant, pig-headed, blind, but I cannot imagine anything uh, causing me to walk away from Christ. But you know what? They have the same attitude. About his well, I, I think perhaps the, the most notable difference is that you know we we can base uh, our 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 faith on um, book knowledge, understanding of God's mm-hmm. word, um, uh, our our ability to uh, you know recite theology, even how adept we are at mm-hmm. apologetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the major distinction here between the two is that they talk of their God. But within Christianity, mm-hmm. it's, yes, a strong intellectual component, and we have theology and all of that mm-hmm. to, to, to go toe-to-toe. But the one thing, the one distinction is that we have a relationship. Sure, yeah. And if you've experienced that mm-hmm. relationship, not religious head knowledge, but experience yeah. that relationship, and that for you is a living, breathing, vibrant relationship mm-hmm. I mean, it would be no no more logical than to say, well, do, do you deny that your wife exists? What are you mm-hmm. talking about? Yeah. Live with a woman for 35 years, got four kids. Yeah. How can – no, because there's been relationship mm-hmm. there. So you know that you know that you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the uniqueness of the Christian faith, that we can know that we know that we know because Christianity is the one religion where very God himself invites us to know him. Well, let me give you a little pushback from a Muslim point of view. They, they would say the same thing. I know that I know that I know because the Quran, it's in the Quran. Mm-hmm. And the Quran is the eternal word of God. The Quran is the miracle of Muhammad. And that kind of argument that you just made, I rejoice in that. I mean, I resonate with that. It would make no inroads with them. Whatsoever, believe me, <laughs> it would not. Even, I've been there. even if you take the approach <laughs> yeah. by saying, and, and again, this is the distinction that I'm yeah. making. Yeah. It's not that I know that I know that I know before uh-huh. the Bible tells me so, yeah. though that be true. Yeah. But can they legitimately say? Can they answer in their quiet moment, not for mm-hmm. the sake of argument, mm-hmm. but for the sake of being true to oneself? Mm-hmm. Can they say that they personally know Allah? That they have a personal relationship oh, no, they could not with Allah that. himself. They See, there's not. the yeah. distinction. Yeah. Yeah. There's the distinction. But they would say, I don't need to have one because that's not a component of their religion. Therefore, since it's not a component of their religion, it's not something that's necessary. 
Well, it may not be you necessary, see what I'm up but yes, but, 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 but what a joy that it is. Sure, yeah. What an absolute yeah. joy that it is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Believe me, I've talked my head off. <laughs> uh, I think the and, one distinction we learn when it comes to witnessing to our Muslim friends is that we can argue theology, mm-hmm. we can argue historicity, yeah. we can go toe-to-toe. Um, in the end, I think it becomes sort of a Romans 1 moment in that God has to reveal himself. It has to be that. To them. It has to be that. And I think the faithfulness to just being there, yeah. being available. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard it said, you know, people say, well, you know, how come you've never made a, a commitment to Jesus Christ? And you, you typically get two responses, either because someone has never known a Christian, so they mm-hmm. had no example, or because they have known a Christian yeah. and they're, yeah. they're totally right. well, repulsed by yeah. the idea. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the sense of making oneself available, and you know, I think the distinction here, too, is uh, we're called to share the word, make mm-hmm. disciples. Um, we're not called to do the job of the Holy Spirit. It's still the distinct... Yeah function of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin. That's right. And while it may be true that perhaps on a horizontal plane uh, relationship that you're finding challenges in getting through to them, I know one who, the, the, the hound right. of heaven, as they say. That's right. Uh, you know what? Paul, it could have been argued, Paul? I mean, Saul? Oh, mm-hmm. Saul? No, no yeah, way. Yeah, Forget yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. The very God of the universe yeah. knew a way to get a hold of him, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I believe it's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by, not by my ability to reason with them. Though I will continue to do so, and I believe the Holy Spirit will use that. I, I appreciate you sharing that insight, Pastor Brown, because I got to tell you, there there aren't many men of the cloth that would come on a radio program and declare to the world you're having a challenge in that arena. But what I love about your candor is, it should be used as a lesson for all of us. Mm-hmm that it's about our attitude of our heart, mm-hmm. our motivation, yeah. and and where we're putting our trust in all of this process and reaching others. Sometimes we think, I think, that it's our job to do this. I'm going to reach you for Christ um, and completely negate the critical involvement of the Holy Spirit yeah. in that entire process. Yeah. And just to see them as projects and not and not as people. And since you haven't converted in six months, I'm going to shake the dust off my I'm feet. I'm off to go. someone else. Yeah, I, I, that's just the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will have to tell you in your relationship with someone what your response should be. The Holy Spirit has not told me to move on. And, and you know what I find fascinating about that? That sometimes we believers have very, very short-term memories because if we think back about our own faith yeah. walk, my heavens, I can say, well raised and baptized in the church, I was exposed to the gospel over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Yeah. And you said, well, Craig, what finally made you surrender? Oh, well, here's my list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what makes us think that anyone else is any different? Yeah. That sometimes it takes repeated contact and, and, and over time and the tearing down of walls and the stripping away and, and all, that, that's right. all that's allowed to happen. And we never know when that person's time is. Yeah for them to surrender to Christ. And praying for these men and just begging God for their salvation and that the God who blinds their eyes would be bound. I, I'm so grateful that nobody ever said of me, okay, his time's up. Yeah, you know, We've shared, we've talked, we've prayed, there's been no response, lost cause, move yeah. on to the next. Take the dust off your feet. And, and isn't it great, too, that Jesus doesn't do that yeah. either, that until our very last breath. Yeah. So, you know, Outside of Afghanistan and refugee camps in Pakistan, Fremont has the world's largest population of Afghans, 25,000 to 40,000, mm-hmm. depending on who you talk to. I live, I live in little Kabul. I'm in Centerville. And so mm-hmm. I, I live right there, a bunch of you know, Afghan-owned businesses and whatnot. And what really struck me is Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Fremont, you just have to go across the street. Yeah. God's brought all the world and, to us. <laughs> and, and if the church cannot go across the street... Close your doors. Yeah. We're no longer the church. If we can engage in our church, probably like every church, it's very diverse. You know, uh, we have Indians and Filipinos and Chinese and uh, African American and Mexican Americans and uh, uh, others in there too. Uh, but with the other religions, they, they surround us. 
And if the church cannot engage, boy, just close the door. Yeah. I would I would agree with you on that. And and in, in some respect, while we've got perhaps the biggest challenge, we've also been afforded the greatest opportunity. We have, you know, yeah. uh, from the Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts. And ironically, God has brought the uttermost parts right to our doorstep. Are the you want to know how to reach the world for Jesus? Step out your front door. That's right. Calvary Chapel in Fremont. Um, service time Sunday mornings ten a.m. Ten a.m. Yeah. And Wednesday night, 645. 645. And then you've got all kinds of programs. You've got a lot of youth programs, the whole bit. Folks can get more information online at calvaryfremont.org. That's calvaryfremont.org. Building Your House, 9 a.m. every Sunday morning right here on KFAX. Podcasts available, too, at the Calvary Fremont website, calvaryfremont.org. Pastor Tim Brown, we appreciate you dropping by. Appreciate to be here, and I'm not sure about the podcast. I think we're working on that. I actually, it's, I, I heard it today. Oh, wonderful! So it's there. Praise the Lord! All right, <laughs> so I'm a step ahead of you. All right, all right. Let's get a step ahead of traffic for you here. Six seventeen, an update from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Whether we're talking about Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, or any Islamic country in that part of the world, can they actually adopt a Western style of democracy as we see it? Or is that even possible? And what about the greater worldview when we talk about the issue of Islam residing side by side with other worldviews, such as um, the Judeo-Christian worldview? Is it possible? Can true coexistence happen, or is this simply a myth? Well, my next guest, I think, would suggest that this is nothing more than wishful thinking. Robert Stearns is executive director of Eagle's Wings, an international relational network of believers, churches, and ministries. He is an author of a new book entitled No, We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. And Robert, thanks for being with us on the program tonight. Well, Craig, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, all the KFAX family out there in San Francisco. You know, I am reminded of a statement that was made back in the 1990s on the heels of the riots that took place in Los Angeles and other parts of the West Coast that following the uh, the jury trial of the four cops that were accused in the beating of Rodney King. And after several days of rioting in the streets and there had been loss of life and so forth, Rodney King asked a very poignant question on television uh, with eyes, he asked, can't we all just get along? And there seems to be some level of which that sort of sentiment is being repeated today when we see the, the kind of violence taking place in the Middle East, when we've seen the attacks on the United States at the hands of those who at least claim to be Muslims uh, since uh, the first initial 93 bombing of the World Trade Center, then of course again in 2001 and ongoing. This big question, when we talk about these two very different worldviews, and I think for the sake of conversation it's fair to, to lump um, uh, Judaism and Christianity together is one worldview, at least sharing the same God, and then Islam on the other side. Can't we all just get along? Well, you know, it would. It, it, it certainly would be wonderful if we could, and I think that those of us in the West who really view religious freedom, basic human rights, the kind of human rights that are enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations, we really wish that that was the case. But unfortunately, Uh, What I believe is happening, Craig, is that we are trying to interpret uh, a Middle Eastern and Eastern mindset through a Western lens. And it just doesn't work, because words don't have the same meaning. Uh, And I want to hasten to say that what we're talking about here, what I talk about in the book, is uh, the radicalized portions of both Islam and secularism. Uh, certainly there are millions and millions of peaceful Muslims. They just want to raise their families, they're good citizens, etc. But there is a well-funded, militant, growing aspect, specifically within radical Islam, um, that is causing a serious global turmoil and unrest. And it's not going to go away. Uh, if anything, it's increasing. And the West has to uh, get its head out of the proverbial sand and begin to really take a look at the realities of what's happening on our watch. 
All right, but let's talk about this for a minute. For most of us here in the West, specifically the United States, we've had the example of how a pluralistic society operates. And and for the most part, through, I think, the bulk of our history, and while we certainly have had our racial divides, we in America have generally gotten along when it comes to religious matters. We generally kind of, you know, live and let live. We see Protestants getting along pretty well with Roman Catholics and Jews alike, even the the occasional secularist or uh, atheist, uh, maybe Madeleine Murray O'Hare Notwithstanding, we all generally just kind of agree to disagree and leave each other alone. What is it uniquely about the kind of radical Islam that we're seeing unfold, not only in the East, but beginning to show its tentacles here in the United States, that won't fit into that historically cozy, comfy, uh, at least somewhat tolerant form of pluralism that we've had here in the United States for going on 300 years? Well, because... The, the, the examples you gave there, Craig, they all have certain core understandings with them. And that is, uh, you know, in America, we have freedom of religion, but we also have freedom to not practice religion. There does not exist in this country a mandate of belief one way or another. When you said earlier in the program, uh, when you were doing the introduction, that in Libya, in Egypt, in different places, uh, you know, we're hopeful to see democracy come forth. I think what we confuse uh, the issue with, as Americans is that we think of democracy in its most basic terms of being one person, one vote. That is not the full essence of democracy. The true essence of democracy deals with a separation of powers. It deals with protection for minorities within your borders. Uh, it deals with various uh, freedoms that are enshrined within that democratic process. And so what you see with a lot of the countries right now in the pan-Arab world, uh, even as we remove these ruthless dictators, unfortunately, we don't know what's going to rise up in their place. And you have organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood, like Al-Qaeda, and many, many others, uh, who really want to see Sharia law, uh, an extreme form of uh, Islamic interpretation that doesn't just apply uh, to private religious practice, but applies to every single area of life. Uh, and they want to see Sharia law be made the rule of the land, which would make anyone who is not a Muslim uh, something uh, called uh, dhimmis. They would be put under the Sharia classification of dhimmitude, where they become essentially second-class citizens. And, Craig, we don't have to look any farther than the courageous pastor in Iran right now who's been on trial for his life uh, because of his conversion from Islam to Christianity uh, to see the kind of result of uh, this religious political system that is Islam. We have to, in the West, stop simply saying that Islam is a religion. Islam is not simply a religion. It is also a political, um, governmental worldview, and it's spreading broadly, and we need to wake up to that reality. All right, with all that said, as part of the problem here, as we see some thinking that somehow we're going to see Western-style democracy come to the Middle East, or the ability of <coughs> biblical law, natural law, British common law, Sharia law, all somehow peacefully coexist, that there's, as you suggest, a distorted view of the East by the West and the West by the East. I mean, I, no doubt we get upset when we say, look, if you watch Western movies and think that uh, uh, Robert Redford or John Wayne are indicative of what life is like in America, then you obviously have a very distorted view. Same token, are there are problems when we take kind of the, the romanticized, I don't know, Lawrence of Arabia or a, a Rudolph Valentino chic view of what life is like in the <laughs> Middle East? Well, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, absolutely. And I, I, let, let's just look at it this way, Craig. You know, uh, several months ago, there was all the brouhaha uh, in New York. I live in New York regarding the potential of what they called the Ground Zero Mosque. And uh, were they going to build a mosque near the Ground Zero site? And I I'm not going to weigh in on that issue right now, but I want to raise the point that, you know, uh, those who practice the Muslim faith build mosques here in America on an ongoing basis, as they should be allowed 
too. This is a country that practices freedom of religion, and I'm glad that I live in a country that practices freedom of religion. But here's the point, Craig. Why don't we see that reciprocity extended to the Muslim world? Why don't we see Christians allowed to build churches in the Muslim world? Why do we see in Egypt uh, our Egyptian Coptic brothers and sisters, the Coptic Christians who are being martyred for their faith, why don't we see them uh, able to practice their faith in safety and freedom? Egypt receives the second highest amount, or, or did at one time, the second highest amount of foreign aid from this nation uh, of any other nation on the planet. That's our taxpayers' dollars, and we should absolutely insist that if Muslims are going to have freedom of expression, freedom of culture, freedom of worship here in the West, in America, in Canada, in Europe, well, then it's time for the Muslim world to open up and express reciprocity and allow for freedom of religion in these other countries. We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation tonight with Robert Stearns, author of No, We Can't Wait, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. When we come back, we'll understand a bit more about these two diametrically opposing worldviews and why the notion of coexistence just doesn't make any sense when we talk about our differing values. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Robert Stern, we're talking about his new book, No We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. Let's talk about these differing values for a moment, because at the core, when we talk about differing worldviews or, or differing world values, maybe this will give us a, a better understanding of why you have drawn the conclusion that this idea of coexistence is a myth. Well, absolutely. You know, we have within the, the classic Judeo-Christian worldview, Craig, um, at the end of the day, we have a culture that values life. We have a culture that absolutely values life and sees life as sacred and sees all human life as an expression uh, of the image of God. Each, each, each human being is created in the image of God and is endowed then with dignity, with purpose, with value. Uh, when you look at these other two worldviews, when you look, let's for, look for a moment at militant secularism, uh, we're not talking about your basic agnostic down the street. I'm talking about those who are uh, really committed in their, in their militant uh, atheist worldview. Uh, you know, Bill Maher comes to mind uh, on HBO. Uh, some of these folks that are really radical in their, in their belief system. Well, if you're in an ultra-materialistic worldview, and the fact of the matter is, uh, human life has no value uh, other, other than uh, for its own pleasure. Um, you know, in a materialistic universe where your last breath is what it's all about, um, why should we care for our elderly? Uh, why shouldn't euthanasia be an option? Uh, what, why do we worry about abortion? Uh, there's an overall devaluing of life and a sterilization that comes um, to the process. We say, Robert, but that's not the case with Islam. They believe in a creator. Well, they do believe in a creator, but um, many, many times around the world, this chant, this mantra is heard, which is uh, that Islam uh, loves death uh, more than we, the West, love life. Uh, let me just tell you a story. I, I do a lot of work in uh, Israel. I go back and forth on a consistent basis to Israel and have for 20 years. So it gives me a very unique perspective on these situations. There is, uh, right now, within the leadership of the Palestinians, uh, a woman who was recently elected to the Palestinian parliament. Uh, she has five sons. Uh, when her fourth son um, uh, became the fourth martyr of her five sons, in other words, son number one blew himself up. Son number two blew himself up. Son number three blew himself up. And then son number four blew himself up. Uh, the woman got on television and said, uh, I'm just overjoyed, and I hope that my fifth son follows in the path of his brothers and becomes shahada, becomes 
uh, a suicide bomber. And so uh, the community there promptly elected her to the parliament. And these are the people, the kind of people, uh, that the Israelis are having to negotiate with. We were dealing with a society within radicalized Islam, and I'm going to just keep hammering it home. We're talking about the radicalized portion of Islam. But they are more committed uh, to a culture of death, a culture of jihad, uh, than the West is committed to a culture of life. And so we really do have uh, serious, serious trouble on our hands. And it is time for those of us who live in the West, if we have any concern for the kind of world that we're going to leave to our children and grandchildren, We've got to wake up to what's happening in our generation. All right. Now, you're making some clear distinctions here, and I want to underscore this, because we look historically, for example, at, at what I'll call secular Islamic society. Uh, that might contain, for example, what we saw for 30-something years in Egypt. Uh, I'm not suggesting or giving a nod in any direction of favoritism toward Hosni Mubarak at any level whatsoever. But largely, the Mubarak regime was a secular society. They kind of left people alone. For the most part, Coptic Christians could kind of coexist, albeit kind of quietly in the background, but they were generally left alone. Mubarak now out of the picture. We begin to see the rise of Sharia law and, most importantly, the beginnings of the denomination, potentially, of the Muslim Brotherhood. All of a sudden, Coptic Christians are being attacked, and the churches are being set afire. And all of a sudden now, a very hostile environment is being created for them. We've seen that also in Afghanistan and Iraq, where in recent years, the Christian populations in those countries are now a shadow of what they once were. Well, I, I just heard the other day that the last Christian church in Afghanistan has closed. Uh, let, let's use an even more stark example, Craig. Let's use Turkey. I mean, Turkey for years was the classic example of a modern, secular Islamic state. Uh, the founder of modern Turkey, Ataturk, was absolutely adamant that it was to be uh, you know, um, kept as a secular state uh, with Islamic traditions. Well, what has happened here over just the past several years? Uh, as elections have gone on in Turkey, even though they were being considered for membership into the e European Union, Turkey has moved farther and farther and farther to the right into levels, more and more levels of Islamic fundamentalism. So even though it's not a convenient truth, even though it's an uncomfortable truth, the fact of the matter is, in much, if not most, of the Arab Muslim world, the trend is toward a more strict and fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. Uh, unfortunately, we have very few examples where things are trending toward possibilities that could be more peaceful, which would then lead toward coexistence. As this trend is taking place, we're talking about a religion, Islam, that's been around since the 700s. Why all of a sudden, 13, 1400 years later, is it becoming so radical? A timeout will answer that question. Robert Stearns, our guest, to look at No, We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. Back with more in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're continuing our visit here with Robert Stearns. The book, No, We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. Let's talk about what has shifted here, since we've already acknowledged that there have been seasons when there's been uh, much to do about the spread of Islam by means of force, and then a long, quiet period here, and now, really since the uh, the 1980s into the 1990s, a radical spread of Islam, uh, to the point of a sword, as you point out. What has, what has been the, the genesis behind this shift? Well, first of all, I, I, I'm not sure that the shift is, that it's so much a shift as, as it is so much uh, that we live in a world with increased awareness, increased media. Uh, you know, you can go through history and see the thread of violence throughout Islam's history. However, there are a couple unique things that I think should be brought, um, brought to people's attention. Number one, uh, we certainly see that the, the rise of the Industrial Revolution and the West um, absolute addiction to oil has caused just massive amounts of funding 
uh, massive amounts of wealth, unprecedented wealth, uh, to flow into uh, oil-rich countries like Saudi Arabia and others, where Wahhabi Islam, uh, which is the most extreme form of Islam, uh, is practiced and, and, and has grown. So, number one, I think there's a funding source um, that is far more extensive than was present for much of Islamic history. Number and that two, support of Wahhabism is largely both in the Middle East and globally coming from Saudi Arabia, is it not? Absolutely, which somehow somehow continues to purport to be our ally. So our biggest our biggest oil trading partner and our so-called ally in the region mm-hmm. is also the biggest exporter of the most extreme version of Islam, Wahhabism. And what you have is exactly what you talked about earlier in Egypt, etc. Uh, you have a small ruling family um, that basically only can stay in power by buying off and, and staying in the good graces of these Wahhabi clerics, these, these extremist clerics. And so, you know, I, I think of the quote of, of, of Winston Churchill uh, after the days of Neville Chamberlain, when Neville Chamberlain came back from Hitler, and Chamberlain said that he had negotiated peace, uh, and he said, we have peace in our time. And uh, Winston Churchill stood up and said, uh, he said, appeasement, appeasement is when you feed your friends to the crocodiles first in hopes that the crocodiles are going to eat you last. <laughs> uh, you're eventually going to have the problem of the crocodile. Uh, you may just kick it down the road a little longer, but it's, it, the problem is not going away. The second reality uh, that I believe is accelerating this issue is the modern state of Israel. The modern state of Israel coming into existence in 1948 and then more fully in 1967 with the reunification of Jerusalem, uh, this poses massive theological uh, angst and complication for Islam um, because this does not fit into Islamic theology, that there would be a Jewish state in the Middle East um, that there would be a strong, vibrant uh, Jewish presence in what has been historically, uh, in recent time, under Muslim control, this provokes um, tremendous uh, frustration within the heart of global Islam. So I think these are a few of the reasons uh, why we see this issue growing exponentially. All right, so with that thought in mind, unless Israel decides to uh, toss in the proverbial towel and just, you know, shut down for business, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon, and I've had Benjamin Netanyahu as a guest on this program on multiple occasions. I know he's pretty steadfast, steadfast about Israel hanging around for at least a while. Right. Uh, then what is this suggesting? Way, scripture agrees with him. Absolutely, though. So, so that said, then, we're looking at what? Just a continued escalation of this, uh, you know, n- not only obviously... Uh, uh, sort of a firebrand going on there with uh, Jerusalem and Israel and the Middle East, but then, too, the continued clashing of these two uh, worldviews or two kingdoms? Well, Scripture is pretty clear, and, and I, am not, um, I am not one who bangs the eschatological drum. Uh, I'm not one of these who, who, you know... I think we have to be wary of setting dates for the return of the Lord and all of these issues. Now, don't go picking on Harold Camping. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you, uh, when we read Scripture, uh, I'm telling you, Craig, reading Scripture is like listening to the evening news. I mean, you read Scriptures that say that in the last days, Jerusalem will be a cup of reeling, a cup of controversy that all the nations will drink. Well, well we see it happening every day at the United Nations. Um, uh, we really are pressing into unprecedented times. So what do we do? What do we do? Number one, we as Bible-believing Christians must come into alignment with God's heart for the city of Jerusalem, God's heart for the Jewish people and the state of Israel. I absolutely believe that that is a responsibility incumbent upon us, not only as Christians, uh, but also as Americans. We must begin to educate ourselves and to stand with the Jewish people, and the state of Israel. Number two, uh, God loves Muslims. He's, he's just crazy about them. He loves them. He wants to see them blessed and set free from a spirit of violence. We need to pray 
that God's love will begin to just sweep across the Muslim world. We need to pray for a raising up of missionaries uh, of courage. You know, a hundred years ago, we had missionaries who would just boldly go into the dark places of the world, knowing that they would pay with their very lives for the spread of the gospel. We need to pray for that kind of zeal to rebaptize a new generation of Christian missionaries, and that we would see the Muslim world absolutely one with the love of Christ. And number three, uh, we need to stand firm over and over and over again in Scripture. We are given the injunction to stand firm in our faith, to stand, to stand steadfast and unmovable. It, it is my opinion, and I've been in this thing a long time, uh, it is my opinion that the days and years ahead uh, are going to be very, very unstable, very, very difficult, but also very, very glorious. I believe that those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ with whole hearts, with wholehearted devotion, uh, that we're going to see things happen that we haven't seen since the book of Acts. I believe there's a great blessing coming on the church, uh, but it's going to be happening against the backdrop of extraordinarily difficult times. Wow, and, and certainly uh, we're seeing a lot of that evidenced in the headline news and, and supported ultimately from a prophetic standpoint in Scripture. Robert Stearns, thanks so much for the time today. A look at No We Can't, Radical Islam, Militant Secularism, and the Myth of Coexistence. The new book published by Chosen, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.